Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Vanished ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. I think he knew. I think he chose it. Right before he went missing, we took a picture from my mother for Christmas of our families, our spouses, our children, and Michael... He flew home for it. He was very adamant about wearing orange. He was very adamant about certain things in the picture. He was a little obsessed with The Born Identity, the movie The Born Identity, and he asked me once, what would you do if you ever called and I wasn't here? And I said, well, what do you mean if I just disappeared? So I can see him just walking in the door and be like, hey, I know I've been missing for 20 years. Sorry about that, but I can see it. Michael Wallace was a 29-year-old Massachusetts native living in Menlo Park, California, with a bright future and full life ahead of him. He had graduated from one of the most elite universities in the world and didn't have to worry about finding a job. So when he disappeared without a trace, his family had to wonder, did he choose to vanish? Was his fascination with the born identity more than just a dream? Did he seek answers in a monastery after studying Buddhism for several years? We don't have all the answers to these questions, but this is a compelling, mystifying story of a brilliant man who wanted to find answers to his own internal struggles for himself and others, but vanished before that happened and has not been seen since February 4th, 2003. I'm Marissa, and from Wondery, this is episode 341 of The Vanished. Michael Wallace's story. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries, and thrillers, and more. My favorite part is that members can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. The Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere, while traveling, working out, doing chores, you decide. I carve out a little bit of time each evening to listen while I'm cooking, and right now I'm listening to Lay Them to Rest by Laura Norton. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash MIA or text MIA to 500-500. That's audible.com slash MIA or text MIA to 500-500. Michael Wallace wasn't just gifted, he was extraordinary. His entire life was described to us by so many as a dream that most people could only hope to experience. He had a close, tightly-knit family who lived on a street named after their ancestors and were among the fifth generation to live in an enclave west of Boston, called Lemonster, where he grew up. Michael was the third child of Ralph and Angela Wallace. He had two older siblings, Gary and Kim, that he shared close relationships with, along with many extended family members. Michael's father had passed away at just 51 years old, after suffering a sudden and fatal heart attack on April 22, 1999. Michael's father had been a career firefighter, and his death devastated the Wallace family, but especially his youngest son, Michael. One of the people we spoke to is Gina, Michael's cousin. I think his dad passing, he didn't understand it because his dad was so young and his dad was so healthy. His dad would run every day. 10 miles was nothing to him. 
his dad didn't put a narcotic in his body ever. He didn't drink. Like he was just a healthy, healthy guy. And he passed away early. And that to Michael, he didn't understand why. He just didn't get it. And I think that took a turn in his brain a little bit. He was mentally struggling with his dad passing and things happening within his life. You just don't know where he was at mentally because you never did. You never knew where he was mentally because he always put on that happy face. We spoke to many people who know and love Michael. And one of them is another cousin, Carrie, whose father was a firefighter alongside Michael's dad. She told us how deeply his death affected the family. Uncle Ralph's death had an effect on everyone around him. He was such a driving force in in the family. And I mean, my Uncle Ralph was so proud of Michael. And there was a lot of pressure that came from Uncle Ralph. You know, I got away with a lot of things. I grew up, you know, loving music and dressed weird and had weird hair. And Uncle Ralph would always say, I love it. Do whatever you want, because at the end of the day, you're not my daughter. You're not my kid. So he was always the uncle that encouraged me to be weird because he wasn't my dad. And then would just look at my dad and shake his head and be like, that's your daughter, not mine. You know, my dad never really was the same after Uncle Ralph died either. He was in believable shape, still a firefighter, jogging every day, working out in his gym in the basement. My my uncle was a, a massive kind of wall of a man. I was actually working at the radio station when the word got out and they they called me at work to tell me that he had passed. And I drove back to Lemonster like as fast as I could as soon as I got off the air to meet the family and everyone was at Annie Val and Uncle Mike's house, Gina's parents' house down the street with with Annie Ange and waiting for her to get back because she was away. It was just no one could believe it because Uncle Ralph was so full of life. I mean he was famous in Lemonster because he was always jogging. Miles and miles and miles of jogging. People used to give him t-shirts because it was free advertising, because he would just jog everywhere. So it was, it was such a horrible thing that, that he passed so young. I ran the Boston Marathon in 2019, and I'm not a runner and don't enjoy it, but I, but I did it anyway. And Annie Ange gave me some of Uncle Ralph's hat pins that I pinned on my marathon bib. And Gary was at the finish line waiting for me. And Kim and Gary, Annie Ange, they were all like, you know, Ralph would be so proud of you. I had a lot of health issues growing up that Uncle Ralph was always so supportive of. I spent a lot of time in the hospital as a kid. And so the idea that I would grow up and run a marathon is not something anyone would have expected. And, and I made sure that I had Uncle Ralph with me when I ran that day. Michael's dad left an indelible mark on many for sure. But his death impacted Michael's life significantly. When his dad died, it was devastating for all of us. He was my godfather. It was my dad's best friend. That was a real shock to all of us. And I know it affected everyone differently. I can't imagine how that affected Michael. But I didn't hear a lot before his dad passed away about how much he was actually struggling. For the next several years, Michael would fight the internal battles he had been struggling with for a long time. 
which we will explore more deeply later in the episode. But ultimately, it was sometime on February 4, 2003, that he vanished and hasn't been seen or heard from again. By this point in Michael's life, he had married and relocated to California. Michael and his wife had separated, and Michael was living with a roommate. Michael was planning a trip back to Boston, but lost his passport. Michael made plans with his estranged wife to help him get to the DMV to obtain identification so that he could fly to Boston. Michael's mom, Angela, told us what she knew of the plans Michael was making immediately before he disappeared. His wife called. We talked to him Monday night. Tuesday, he was going to get with her and she was going to help him get his ID, organize everything to come home. And he had lost his passport, which ended up coming back to us a couple days later. Someone found it and mailed it. But she called on Friday and asked if I had heard from him. And I said, I thought he was with you. And that's how we found out the three days later. I think I just went numb, kind of. I was I was due to go on a habitat trip the next morning. And I wasn't going to go. And the two friends I was going with, well, if you don't go, we're not going to go. And it was their rotary and habitat that, that hooked it all up. And I went. And I did go because Kim said, I'll go to California and you go on your trip. So I said, okay, if I go and help people with Habitat, someone's helping Michael. So while Angela was on her trip, Michael's older sister, Kim, immediately flew to California to look for her brother before the trail went cold. So we had talked for like, I don't know, four hours or something. We talked forever, night before the night before. And the next day... He was supposed to, his wife was supposed to come and help him just to get to the RMV to get an ID so he could get an ID to fly home. So he was going to take the train to the RMV just so he could get an ID and buy a plane ticket. She was just going to help him do that. And he called and canceled on her. Elena had come to the house that night before to give him a ride. And he said, no, I don't need a ride. My guess is he just didn't want to see her. He couldn't. He did buy, I found out in his bank account, that he did buy the train ticket to get him those three stops to get to the RMV, but he never went. His roommate had come back in and said, I thought you were going to the RMV, and, and Michael was lying on the couch with his hand over his eyes and said, I tried, and the ticket to the train was still on the table right next to him, and that was the last time his roommate had seen him. So a couple days later, his ex-wife, had called and said, have you heard from Michael? And we said, what do you mean? Wasn't he supposed to go with you to get his ID and you were going to help him to get home? We've been waiting for that call. And she said, no, he called and canceled. So then we started calling his phone and we started calling. And that's when I think it was the Saturday, that Saturday. And then I didn't sleep for weeks and we just hacked into everything. And my ex-husband and I flew out there and just searched. And we went every, we stayed with his ex-wife a couple nights and then we searched all along every place that I knew he went, went to the homeless communities, went to Stanford, went to Palo Alto because that's where his mailbox was. And every place I found on his phone record, anywhere that he, anybody he talked to, we drove to Half Moon Bay because there was a house down there with a name of somebody that was new and his name was Wallace. And yeah, so we just really, we hired a private investigator. We pretty much exhausted all resources, you know, real quick. All he did was take $300 out of his bank account, which is perfectly normal. He still had a lot of money left in there. It was a regular withdrawal for him. And nothing else, nothing else was moved. 
It's believed that Michael left his home on foot sometime on February 4, 2003, because his two vehicles, a Porsche and an Alfa Romeo Spider, were left behind at his home. Where Michael was headed remains a mystery to this day. However, we do know that Michael took some items with him when he disappeared, including his medications, phone, and his grandfather's dog tags. Kim told us more. His phone that he called us on all the time was missing. We haven't been able to find that, and it went dead. It was We left messages, and then it went dead, so we have never found that. I didn't find his wallet, and I think that's where the photo of us, all of us, would have been, and I know he loved that photo because he talked about it all the time. So that and the meds, like, I didn't find any of that in the room, uh, in his uh, apartment. The roommate was kind of new, too, so we didn't have a big interaction with him. And his best friend had gone over and packed everything up a couple weeks later after he didn't come home. So he had only been in this apartment in San Mateo for not very long at all. So it was kind of still um, everything an array. He had a gym bag that was my dad's that was filled with pictures and, and stuff like that, like important the stuff that would have been important to Mikey. So he had that and books. He, he loves his books. Just sort of like he had moved stuff in there and hadn't really unpacked it because I don't think he knew if he was going to be staying or what. So it was sort of just in limbo. He just wasn't, it wasn't a home. He had my grandfather's dog tags, which I've never found again, which were very important to him. Two months after his disappearance, Kim returned home without many answers. And Angela told us that it started to become a reality for her, that Michael hadn't just fallen off the radar or stopped communicating with his family. When it came to uh, birthdays, his birthday's the day after mine in April, I didn't get a call. And Mother's Day, I didn't get a call. So it was starting to sink in that he probably wasn't going to call or come home So, you know, the emotions of everything, of where he is and what he's doing, I just don't know. It depends on the day, what I think. Michael's cousin Carrie explained that when Kim returned from California, she did all she could do to help from their home base in Boston. I think I found out from my mom, who had found out from from his mom and from Kim, I had moved out of town and was living like an hour away. I was working in Boston and I had gotten a call that Mike was missing. And at first it was like, I wasn't worried the way that you would worry if a little kid went missing because he was an adult. So I remember calling Kim and she had told me that she was going to go to California. And uh, I had tried to get the time off to be able to go with her, but I couldn't get the time off. I didn't have enough vacation time or there was something going on at the radio station that I worked at at the time that I was not able to get as much time off to be able to go because I I don't even think she knew when she was coming back at that point. I just remember saying like, obviously I have a lot of friends in California because I work in the music industry. If there's anything I can do to help get the word out, I had a pretty big following at the radio station I worked at and was like, just how can I help? I just want to be involved in any way that I can. So just let me know what I need to do. But I I felt really bad that I wasn't able to go with her immediately when she left to go to California to look for him. I know that she's gone out a couple of times and I've done everything that I could to help get the word out 
over the years, just through all of the different channels that I have available through my job. But to my understanding and knowledge, there wasn't any kind of weird thing that would have tipped people off where he, you know, emptied bank accounts or there weren't these red flags. I I just thought it was Michael kind of just going away to get his head together. And maybe there was a friend that we didn't know about and that he just didn't tell anybody where he was going. But at first, the idea that he was missing and that something could be wrong, the way that something would go wrong if it were obvious that he were the victim of a crime, you know, a a robbery, a home invasion, just anything like that. I just thought, oh, okay, he's he's got to be around. Let me guess, your medicine cabinet is crammed with stuff that doesn't work. You still aren't sleeping, you still hurt, and you're stressed out. That's how it was for me. So I cleared out my cabinet, and I'm excited to reset my health with CBD from CB Distillery. CB Distillery's targeted formulations are made from the highest quality clean ingredients. No fluff, no fillers, just pure, effective CBD solutions designed to help support your health. In two non-clinical surveys, 81% of customers experienced more calm. 80% said CBD helped with pain after physical activity, and an impressive 90% said they slept better with CBD. If you struggle with a health concern and haven't found relief, make the change to CB Distillery. And with over 2 million customers and a solid 100% money-back guarantee, CB Distillery is the source to trust. I have a 20% discount to get you started. Visit cbdistillery.com and use code VANISHED for 20% off. That's cbdistillery.com code VANISHED. cbdistillery.com. The team at Hungry Root just sent me a new box full of yummy stuff. My favorite was the rotisserie chicken green goddess salad, but our box was packed full of other delicious things too, like snacks and fresh produce. And my favorite part is that Hungry Root makes my weekday evenings go so much smoother. It's the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality groceries and simple, healthy recipes delivered to your door. All you have to do is take a fun, short quiz, and Hungry Root will get to know your personal health goals. Then they'll build a personalized cart with all of your grocery needs for the week and give you delicious recipe recommendations to put those groceries to good use. And my favorite part is that everything from Hungry Root follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole trusted ingredients. Right now, Hungry Root is offering the Vanish listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com Vanish to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com Vanished. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Michael's disappearance isn't easily explained, because there are many factors that could have played a role in what happened to him. So while you've heard a lot of names and events that haven't yet been explained, we have to go back through his life to explore all of the people, places, and possibilities that ultimately led to Michael vanishing. When we talked with Angela, we asked her to tell us about Michael's younger years from a mother's standpoint. Well, he was always ahead. I think he learned from the other two. Too much, too fast. Fourth grade, we took um, an Apple computer to his school and brought a TV in because he had wrote a little program that the kids could answer questions. Buzz, if it was wrong, and Bell, 
have a bell if it was right, whatever they answered. So, you know, he started back then. He was pretty outgoing, but again, he had a, a two and a half and a three and a half year old siblings that when he was born, that's how old they were. It's really funny that you can have three children and everyone be different. Personality wise, they're all completely different. He was a combination of the two. My daughter is more outgoing. My son, Gary, is, was a lot quieter, but still brilliant because of Michael and Kim are outgoing. They all got along, though. That was pretty good. We did a lot, a lot of sports, keep them busy so they'd start in trouble. He liked learning and he loved, he did like his sports. He was on the computer a lot at home when, when we finally got one. And he liked his friends in the neighborhood. They played in our backyard. Michael's mother's family, the Amicos, have deep roots in Lemonster and have lived there for more than five generations. Michael's cousin Gina, with whom he was especially close, told us about the unique community of family and close friends in which they were raised. Michael and I are three months apart. Michael's mom and my mom are sisters. So him and I grew up together. We're very, very close. My mom and her sister Angela are very close together. We lived in a community where we just all got along, which is unique in a large family. But, you know, if you didn't get along that day, my grandfather was one to just say, get over it, your family, you need to move forward. And so we just all learned to do that. We all just learned to be together. And we lived, my grandfather owned a home on Amico Ave, which is his name. As his brothers got to be older and had their own families, they built houses behind him. There's probably five houses on that street that was Amico Ave. It has since turned into a different kind of a community where, you know, loved ones have passed on. So we've sold houses to different people we know, but they're still within our extended families. We take care of each other for sure. Michael's cousin Carrie is just six months apart in age from Michael and told us about the carefree childhood she remembers with him. Growing up, Michael and I and his brother Gary and a lot of the other neighborhood kids, we were those kids that went home when the streetlights were on or Michael's mom, my godmother, Annie Ange, uh, she had a cowbell and it was loud and you could hear it in the neighborhood. And so if it was time for Michael to go home or if I were eating dinner over there, when you heard the cowbell, we went running. We were always riding bikes and watching movies together. I remember watching Jaws with them and it totally haunted my childhood. Uh, some of the older brothers of some of the kids that we played with in the neighborhood used to call Mike Mad Dog because he was the wild child. He was the one that was always pushing the boundaries and he was the baby in his family. He kind of always got away with everything. And that was kind of what made it fun and exciting growing up together is that we always we're trying to get into a little bit of trouble, but a lot of time I was the only girl, so I didn't get in as much trouble as he did. It was just always trying to pull the bike apart, pull, you know, the, the bike into a wheelie and jump over something. There was a giant sand pit in the backyard that we always were throwing rocks in and playing in. There was always a tree for it. I remember... Uh, way back when we were kids that there were old Playboy magazines that got found somewhere that were stashed in a plastic bag under some rocks and leaves in the backyard in the woods. It was just that kind of innocent childhood fun that 
you could get away with back then when your parents couldn't find you, when you went hiding in the woods, that you just had a time you were supposed to come home and it was either the cowbell or the streetlights and don't be late. Michael was that kid in school that literally was involved in everything. He was super smart. He played football, which in our hometown growing up, football ruled above all else. Uh, He was really handsome. So all the girls were always kind of fawning all over him. And even though he was a year behind me in school, I was in between his older brother, Gary and Michael, and they were both really good looking. So when people would find out that I was quote unquote related to them, because I always grew up calling them my cousins, there was always, does he have a girlfriend? And Michael was always involved with everything. I just remember him always doing something, constantly being busy. And while my upbringing was centered more around the music I listened to and kind of track, we didn't get to spend a lot of time together through sports because I wasn't a cheerleader, but um, we always kind of saw each other in the halls, even though we didn't share a lot of friends. It's not that big of a town. So we were always kind of in each other's business. He's a football player, so the cheerleaders were always around, and there were just always questions about, does he have a girlfriend? Is he still dating so-and-so? And he was just one of those kids in school that was just handsome, and he got a lot of attention, not only for his looks, but for his smarts and his athletic ability as well, but one of those people that was able to have friends with a lot of different groups of people in school because He was in a lot of advanced classes, yet he would get out of school and be at football practice. So he kind of knew everybody and everybody knew him. We also spoke to Michael's older brother, Gary, and he shared that his memories of Michael growing up centered around sports, friends, and family. He's two and a half years younger. Yeah, we always played sports. We did stuff in the yard. We played hockey, basketball, baseball, uh, soccer. Played just about everything in the yard with neighbors and other things. But we were in the same age group in the sense that we would always do things like that together in the neighborhood. Michael was very outgoing, uh, very confident. He got along with everybody. He was a good kid, very popular. Um, When we played sports and stuff, he he excelled in different sports. He was able to play very well hockey. Football, obviously, was a sport they chose later on. He was the president of his class, captain of the football team. And he got to be a senior as a captain of the track team. He was captain of the basketball team when he was younger. Michael was the youngest of Angela's three children, and Kim told us that he had the classic youngest child personality. Michael actually is very exceptional. So Michael shown like from from the minute he was born, he excelled at just everything. And he wasn't pressured to, he just, he pressured himself. So uh, he was the captain of of, of all the teams he played on, and he was always the star athlete and the one scoring the most goals and the one that was most looked up to and the one that most had the most friends and just really, really exceptional. Harvard actually came to him and wanted him um, to go there. We grew up in a very close family. We spent every weekend at our grandparents. We were surrounded by our family at holidays and events. We still do that. My husband's actually from New Zealand and moved here because our family is, is just that close and connected. I'm going to tell you it was basically idyllic. So what I've come to terms with now that I'm 52 is that I was kind of not ignorant, but sort of coddled and loved and protected from the rest of the world. And in a lot of a lot of ways that some people are that we're, we are maybe not used to. And I think that's a big part of 
why Mikey's been missing for so long. Prior to attending college, Michael excelled in athletics, and it was clear that he was academically gifted. But Kim told us that he never really expressed a desire to work in any specific field. He didn't really talk a lot about what he wanted to do. And even when he went to Harvard, they tested him to see what he should be. So, you know, my dad was a firefighter and a lot of the men in my family are firefighters. He never really aspired to anything like that. He just really wanted to be successful. I don't think it mattered. We were brought up with computers very early. In fact, I own a, I'm a developer and I own a computer store. And my other brother works for Harvard now and runs their Windows infrastructure for the business school. So we're kind of all dorks. But I don't remember him ever really having an aspiration to be anything in particular. He just, he just, he loved research, he loved to learn, and he loved to win, and he loved to just be the best. He's the sweetest guy you'll ever meet, and, the, and the, I still have people 20 years now, and they'll call me and say, oh, he came and sat with me at lunch, or, oh, I was so in love with him, or he was just the best guy. He, I mean, he's, he is an exceptional human. He really is. You can tell by his smile. He's just, he's just a good guy. As Michael approached the end of high school, the weight of attending one of the world's most prestigious universities must have been weighing on him. He was certainly bright enough and was also athletically gifted. But from everyone we talked to, he seemed to feel like he wasn't good enough or that he needed to be fixed. Angela told us that she noticed a change in Michael's behavior. But one day, shortly before high school graduation, it came to a head. His senior year, you know, I thought it was senioritis. You know, all the kids get a little a little off when they're getting ready to leave high school and go to college or whatever. But one day he came home, sat down and said, I can't make it through the day of school. I said, what are you talking about? And he was like, just, I just can't make it through the day. I, I don't feel like I can make it. I said, I don't know how to help you. You got to talk to somebody. And then when his father came home, he stopped talking about it. But that the next day was the only day it was a psychologist at school. Once a month, the psychologist came. So he went and talked to him, and that's how it started going. Three weeks, we all went to therapy, the whole family, which was good. Him by himself sometime, other times all of us. And Michael wanted a quick fix, so he sent him to a psychiatrist, who Michael right away liked because he had just graduated from Harvard, and Michael just got his acceptance to Harvard, and he turned 18 the next day. So he wanted to go to the hospital and get a quick fix. He was 48 days in the hospital, and they first tried a different cocktail of, of drugs. They had him on Prozac, and it didn't work, so they took him off. He had to crash from that, and then they started him on the Welbutrin and Lithabid, and over the years, he had changed it himself with other doctors. But after 48 days, his whole fourth quarter at school, the the teachers all said, oh, he's done enough in the past high school to learn enough. He was fine. He didn't have to make up any classes or anything. The vice president talked at the, the graduation instead of him because he had just gotten out of the hospital. He, he wouldn't let any of the friends come visit him in the hospital except for my, my niece, one girl, which was a, a good friend, and his coach, and the vice president of his class, another good friend. There was only a few people that he would let in. Because he didn't want everybody to think it was that stigma that he was crazy or something. I think people at school thought he was, went to a smart class or something. Doctor told him that he was 50% chance he would have a, other episodes. But when he did, they would be every two or three years. At the time that Michael was hospitalized, 
mental health was still heavily stigmatized, even more than it is today. And many family members and friends were kept in the dark at Michael's request about his hospital stay. Kim shared what she saw in Michael's behavior. He got diagnosed with major depression. That's what they called it 19 years ago. Not a big fan of labels. He showed um, signs of mania through the years, and he definitely started having anxiety in the years before he went missing, especially in the past, in the couple days before he went missing. He really was having a, a hard time dealing with the anxiety. When he was in high school, he started to show signs of depression, which at the time we, we kind of understood because in the 80s we had a lot of suicides in Lemonster and we didn't really talk about it, but we hugged a lot and it happened and the news was here and it was a big deal. And three years later, Michael comes along and is suffering from depression, but this kid's going to Harvard and he's president of the class and he's captain of the football team. And he's got all these friends. Why would he be depressed? And that in itself, that's what I say when I go speak to the kids is, is that, you know, he, he eliminates the stigma right away because he's loved, he's um, supported, he's not on drugs or alcohol, he wasn't abused, there's nothing, there's nothing that makes him depressed except the chemicals in his head. So that's why we do Michael's Run Now and that's why we tell, talk about him and do the story. But behind that, we're still missing him and we've still been looking for him for 19 years and it's exhausting, but you need to do something with the energy and, and this is what we choose to do. He was hospitalized in a, in a pretty good hospital and we didn't really talk about it with other people, but the hospital talked to us about it and explained a chemical imbalance to us and told us about the process of finding meds and finding his balance and how this was going to work. And Michael just couldn't understand it. How could he, you know, answer any trivia question and, and be so brilliant, but yet he couldn't understand why he would be depressed. It made him mad. That alone, he wanted to solve it. He wanted to solve it for himself and everybody else. Michael's family was deeply concerned about his health and what the future looked like for him. Gary explained that Michael's struggles didn't end with his hospitalization, but that he knew he needed help, sought it out, and wanted to find a cure for the mental health challenges he often battled. My father was a firefighter, and we had good insurance, and he was able to get help and go inpatient for a while. You know, we got 10 years out of him that never would have happened if, if he didn't get the help he needed at the time. Basically, it was almost like a switch went off right around the new year of that year. It just all of a sudden started to, if I don't feel right, I don't feel, I feel sick. I feel something's wrong with me. I don't know what it is. I just can't, I don't feel like I can function all of a sudden. And I had a conversation with him. I came home from college during winter break and I was talking to him and he was saying this. I was like, well, you got to talk to mom and dad. Let's see, let's see what they say. Let's see what you can do. Cause I'm not sure what, what's been going on, but and you always want to think that there's some reason for it. Like something happened or some traumatic event happened, but it's just, that's what, that's what mental illness is. That's the brain chemistry. Just that time just clicked and something didn't, uh, didn't feel right. And then from that point on, he had struggles every, every time he had struggles, it was usually in that time frame, that time of year, January through, I don't know, January through March, April. It seems like seasonal, you know, he had, he definitely had medications and he experimented a few different medications between January and he seemed to be stabilized. Um, and then he had another bout in his junior year, which was, you know, three years later. So there was definitely some times when he, he struggled. When he first had it, people would, you know, someone asked him a question like, hey, what are you taking for drugs? And like, he's like, hey, shh, don't, don't, uh, don't talk about this. And it's, it's not something that should be frowned upon. And I guess that I would, I would hope that nowadays people realize that that is part of the culture. Of, that's part of the people that everybody has some level of, you know, mental health. Gina could see that Michael was so afraid of people perceiving him as unstable or unhinged. 
that he came up with a story to explain why he was missing school during his time in the hospital. So in high school, when I visited him at the hospital, he said that they were giving him medicine to sleep and he was seeing things. So I'm not sure if it was like a medically induced type of situation. But later on, as we got older and he was talking more about how he hears voices in his head, to me, it it didn't sound like psychotic voices at the time. It was more like people are telling me to do things. People are telling me to think about things. And it was almost like extra thoughts in his brain. But now that I'm older and I've done uh, my education around it and all that mental health stuff in my life, I realized that he really could have been hearing voices in his head. He was always trying to fix things. Michael and I were close. He was, you know, captain of the football team. I was captain of the cheerleaders, right? So we were, we were that picture perfect, very close family. But it wasn't, you know, you know, it's not always like that. You know, there's always a, a side to something that people don't know, right? They only see the surface stuff and they choose to see the surface stuff. And Michael always knew that. He always knew people saw the surface. So if it looked good, it was good. So when he went into the hospital in senior year and people said he was visiting colleges, he wanted that to be the story. He wanted people to just think, that's where I'm at. I'm visiting colleges. Yes. And it didn't have anything to do about where he was going to go to school or how smart he was. It was, I don't want people to think I'm crazy because I'm hearing voices. So he only let a few of us come visit him. I think in Michael's name, we're trying to make people understand that on the surface, it doesn't matter what you look like or who you think you are, things happen and it's okay to say it. We can only imagine the pressure Michael must have felt when he emerged from his hospitalization, healthy and ready to move to college. Michael's cousin Carrie told us that attending Harvard was life-changing for all of the family. Michael going to Harvard was such a huge moment for the family. I remember his parents were so proud. The fact that he got to play football was a huge thing as well, but Harvard obviously doesn't have all its eggs in its athletic team basket, that it's such a prestigious academic school that it just was this perfect situation for Michael where he would be challenged academically, but still be able to play football, which is something that he loved to do as well. And I was a year ahead of him, so I had already started college and was going to school in Boston already. And so it was awesome that he was going to be not far away at Harvard. Cambridge is a pretty interesting place, and you've got these two amazing institutions of higher learning right next to each other with Harvard and MIT. And there's just so many schools in and around the Boston area that you've got this kind of clash of college kids that for a lot of them are away from their parents for the first time. I think for Michael, being away from home could be hard, being in a big city, as opposed to how we grew up in our town, where because our fathers worked on the fire department, uh, as did his grandfather. So we grew up where kind of everyone knew who we were and everyone knew our families. And so I could see that being difficult when you get thrust into a major city that is filled with millions of people and you're getting exposed to all different people from all walks of life and coming out of a smaller town the way we grew up, the size of the pond that the fish is swimming in, you know, it was a hard adjustment for me and and I don't struggle with mental health issues. So I can imagine that being difficult for Michael. 
and with the pressures of an academic schedule at Harvard and uh, being part of the athletic program, I I can see how all of those things combined could be incredibly overwhelming for Michael, for sure. I, I can't even imagine the kind of pressure that he was under. There was just so much optimism for Michael getting accepted to Harvard. It's not something that was very common coming from our town. And everyone had such pride in him that I can see the pressure of the possibility of failure being overwhelming for him. And then also playing football on a college level and maintaining the the work that's needed to succeed at both academic and athletic That would be a lot for anyone. Gary explained that while Harvard is known globally as an elite university, it's far more down-to-earth than what most people think. We asked Gary what Michael studied during his time there. Organizational psychology. Organizational psychology is kind of a little bit of a blend. It's not like a one-on-one, you're just doing psychology by yourself. So organizational psychology would be like someone in HR might be someone who knows organizational psychology. It's how people interact with each other as well as just individuals by themselves. I've been working hard for the last for the last twelve years. Yeah, much of the the mystique is there, but that's it's, that's all mystique. It, it's all it really is. The people there are very genuine, and they're actually half of the kids are from public school, half from private school. So all the stuff that you hear about it's not really that as intense as people say it is. Doctors had warned Michael when he was in high school that it was likely that he would experience further cycles of depression later in life, and this did in fact happen when he was at Harvard. In his sophomore year at Harvard, during his exams, he went through another cycle of depression and started showing signs of, you know, real struggles. And he talked to Harvard about it. And funny enough, they completely understood it and told him he needed to find his balance of his meds. They told him, don't take your finals because they understood what was going on. Take them in the fall instead. So he did. He came home for three weeks and we walked a lot. When, When he came home, he... The walking was good for him. When he called me too many times, I'd drive into Boston or Cambridge and walk with him. And that helped a lot for him. And that was his outlet at the time. And he went on. He graduated from Loud in 95 with a degree in organizational psychology. Gary told us that Michael's life changed dramatically when he finished school with two major life events, his marriage and their subsequent move across the country to California. He had a girlfriend, then he got married to her, and they moved out there together. She's from Spain, so she really had no roots anywhere here in Massachusetts. He just looked for a job there. Uh, He had a job here. He was working for uh, Forrester Research, which is an IT research company. So he looked for a job out there and got a job out there and then moved out there. I don't think he was really worried about getting a job. The Harvard Duke does carry a little bit of a weight. And his wife he met after college. She's very, I guess you call her fashionable. She was young like him. She was nice enough. I mean... She tried to help Michael. I definitely think that she was. Um, she did what she could to help him. I don't think she would be used to what was happening to him or understand it because she may not have, not have grown up with somebody who had that issue. After he graduated college, he moved to San Francisco area because they, on the Bay Area, they don't have really a, they don't have the four seasons. They have seventy degrees every day because they're they're moderated by the temperatures of the water. He thought that would be the, the moderation of the temperature might be you know help him cope a little bit better, but I'm not sure that that really played into it as much. That's why I say when it's, when you say seasonal, I'm not sure it was really seasonal. It just was somehow it ended up being that time of year and it ended up being maybe because of 
it could just be because of the time of year, like after New Year's, you start a new year, things like that. I'm not sure. And, and I don't think it was that as much as the chemistry. Kim gave us a bit more detail on Michael's marriage. They met in Boston. She didn't speak any English. Mikey is very, the girls love him. He's beautiful. So he, you know, he's always been a schmooza, a, a, you know, just a lover. She is very fashionable and we saw her, they would come home a lot on the weekends and they came home for every holiday and stuff. So we would see them. But like I said, she didn't speak very good English. So it was just sort of kind of broken conversations. And we laughed a lot. We have a huge family. So she, Elena was here and they met and they loved Boston and they got married at the Ducklings. And we still talk to Elena. My mother does because my mother talks to everybody because that's my mother. But Michael had a huge problem with Elena, and I have some emails that they exchanged. She had had an affair, and when even when I flew out there, she, when he went missing, I stayed with her the first night because I just wanted to get a reading about her. We knew her, but she didn't even speak English when they first met, and she was like, everybody get depressed. Like, she doesn't understand the way Michael suffers, and she felt really horrible for hurting him. And, and wanted to help, but he was kind of ignoring her. And he didn't think that he, he thought she was toxic. And really, she is because people that treat people like that are. And Mikey's not used to that or wasn't used to that. So he didn't really understand it. And I remember having many conversations with him, especially in the weeks before he went missing. You love people the way you love people, not because of the way they love you. We didn't speak to Michael's former wife directly. Because Michael's family told us that while they still keep in touch with her on a regular basis, she preferred not to give an interview. With that in mind, Michael's cousin Gina told us something we had not heard from anyone else that explained more clearly what was going on between Michael and his wife. Well, it was a visual marriage. It wasn't a, I'm not sure if it was a love marriage. It was a, it was for the show of it. I never was convinced that it was a love thing. I think that, you know, Michael sharing with me that she had slept with his counselor. I don't know if that actually happened or not, or if that was a perception in his brain. I'm pretty sure it did happen, but that's me having that feeling, right? So they had like couples therapy a couple times. And could she have said something to trigger him? Absolutely. I think if he cares about someone enough and they say something to him, he takes it and he listens to it what her words were and what his actions are, are two different things though, because I think she often said things and he didn't act on them, but he took it to heart because again, Michael wanted to know the details. Like, why would you say that to me? As we worked our way through interviews and the documents Kim sent to us, we followed Michael's breakdown leading up to his disappearance through two key events. And his wife's infidelity was one of them. Carrie also has distinct memories of Elena that she shared. I just remember thinking, of course, Michael fell in love with this beautiful international woman. And of course, she finds Michael attractive and he was putting his language skills to use. And I studied Spanish in school, but wasn't very good at it. And I remember being impressed that Michael could so easily kind of speak Spanish with her. But I, I didn't spend an awful lot of time with her, and I don't remember exactly when I met her for the first time. I kind of remember her being quiet and Michael being, you know, the louder-than-life character that he always was. I remember, you know, him being excited for me to meet 
her because we grew up together and excited for me to talk about some of the stories from our childhood. From what we learned about Michael, he seemed like a unique mix of an introvert and extrovert all in one. That was something we observed again when his mom shared with us how he met his wife so spontaneously, moved, and then fell back into some of the same mental health challenges he had experienced earlier in life. His wife, when he was married, he went up in Harvard Square, he just went up to her, said, hi, my name is Michael, and they started talking, and they went out for a couple of years and then got married for the four, and then separated. You know, they moved out to San Francisco because it was the only other cool place to live, and he thought the sunshine would help him. I knew he was moving away from his support group, which was us, but um, I figured he could handle it. He went in, you know, with her, and they did fine for a while. But every three years, he seemed to have an episode. A couple of times, he it was okay. And then the last time, there was, like Kim said, there was too much going on. We mentioned two key events that occurred in Michael's life within a fairly short period of time. Aside from the breakup of his marriage, Michael was facing challenges at work, where he was a talented employee. But the dynamics of working in a fast-paced office environment at the heart of the tech industry seemed to burden him, and he was consumed by a negative performance evaluation that he received. Here's Kim. When he came home for Gary's wedding in the fall, I think he didn't even, I don't know if he didn't ask for a vacation or or what, but he came home and I remember it being a problem. Even my conversations with Mikey about it. I don't know the whole story. I just know it had something to do with a woman and his boss, and he had these glowing reviews for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden this guy says, Gives him a bad review, so Mikey was fighting it because he it was that unjust. So he had a lawyer here, and he even talked about coming back to Harvard to get his law degree so that he could fight it. So that was a big another big thing for him. I want to say he had a relationship with a woman. It was just his friend, but her partner, I don't know if it was her husband or boyfriend, was was the one who left the bad review, and it had something to do with that. So it was like a it was like a jealousy thing which is, you know, we're, we're supposed to be adults now, but you know now that you're an adult, that it still happens. So that's what he felt. I think it was based on, and he literally, I have boxes and boxes of just emails and past reviews and all this stuff. He was looking for another job. Like he was, he didn't want to work in a, in a place like, like he didn't want to work for corporate America, right? He didn't want to work for we have meetings about meetings, and as accomplished as he wanted to be, he didn't want to work for people that would do that to each other. But unfortunately, that's the world we live in. So, We don't know the specifics of what was going on with Michael at work, but in one note, Kim wrote the following. Michael was fighting Sun Microsystems, one individual in particular. He felt unjustly targeted over his platonic relationship with a woman, this man's partner. In any case, Michael was building a case against Sun at the time of his disappearance, one of his many stressors. We know he felt very strongly about it. Other documents we were able to review indicate that there were many factors found in his work environment that appeared to be weighing on Michael, and he felt as though many of these things needed to be fixed, an ongoing theme we have followed throughout Michael's story. Regardless of his job, Michael didn't have to worry about money. He'd made plenty of that and could get a job anywhere. 
Though his marriage ending, an unsatisfactory job seemed to significantly impact his life. He had so many opportunities ahead of him and was still only in his 20s. The divorce and problems at work highlighted the fact that Michael was thousands of miles away from everyone he knew best. When Gary visited Michael, he saw the old patterns of mentally unhealthy behavior surfacing again in his brother. He definitely had manic episodes where he would get very high, especially at night. And then, you know, if he burned himself out, then he he literally said that I want to stay up as much as, as long as I can because I have these great ideas right now. I want to do all of it right now while I'm thinking good, while I'm thinking well. And then he would, next morning he would wake up and he was, he was just uh, very quiet and very silent. Meanwhile, Kim explained that there were other factors contributing to Michael's ongoing struggle. He was still grieving the loss of their father. And Kim had lost her own child from medical complications. And he had been Michael's cherished godson. Michael's cycles of depression could be managed with medication. And Michael knew that, according to what Kim told us. He started going through more cycles. Five years earlier, I lost a child to a heart problem. Michael, you know, we talked a lot. He talked to my mother and I mostly about his struggles with depression because he didn't feel like most people understood it. Michael knew that he needed medicine to balance his chemistry. Simple as that. He used to apologize all the time because he thought his depression was a burden to us. He used to think it was exhausting. How can you be okay? You've lost a child because we don't suffer from a chemical imbalance that tells us we want to die. And he, for him to try to make that work in his head just was just exhausting. He just can't, he just can't do it. He can't, he, and he would always apologize. He'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm such a burden. I'm sorry, I'm such a, you know, and, and he's out there and he couldn't get home because he had lost his license the year before to a drunk driving. Um, so he was mortified about that too. So it was just like a, a buildup of, of a lot of things that happened before he went missing. But we talked, he talked to my mother and I both for hours the nights before he went missing, the whole week before. Michael's life and disappearance may feel like it's leading up to a story in which Michael takes his own life. And he had made attempts in the past. But we couldn't shake the feeling that maybe this was the one case where he did actually disappear on his own. Gary told us what he felt after Michael vanished, and how some information pointed towards suicide, but it didn't quite add up. To be honest, I thought some, I thought we'd find something happened to him or something. I mean, immediately when I thought after a week, couple of weeks, I realized that you know this may be if people never had a, a sibling or, or somebody that struggled with depression, they may never consider that, that someone might have done something to themselves. But at that point, I had to realize that there's, in my life, there's somebody that he might have done something to himself. And he would have done something to himself when he was in high school had he not got the help at that point. I, I did have a, a feeling that there might be something, something could have happened. But I also felt that he could have just gone away, got away from everybody for a while. But I, I know my sister just couldn't find him or his phone was lost. But I didn't know, I didn't have a lot of the details at that point, just that he was, nobody had talked to him since Monday when he said he was going to come home and then he was going to make arrangements. He was going to stay at his ex-wife's house the night before. And then he called her and said that I'm not coming. The next day he woke up and I don't know, I guess he, there was some stuff on his computer, but we didn't find that out until afterwards. So in the computer, there was some stuff about carbon monoxide poisoning and a couple of websites that he looked at. So that was something in his recent browser history. He had two cars, but both of them were there. He had a Porsche Boxster and he had an older Alfa Romeo Spider. I understand the car would be the first place you'd look if someone was going to do that. And if he was going to make that choice, I would assume he would have done it in his own car. Kim told us in her interviews that during the last 19 years of searching, 
it's become an instant assumption that Michael took his own life. And we can certainly see why it appears that way. People automatically assume when we talk about Michael that he committed suicide and he could have, you know, he could, he could have, and maybe we didn't find a body. It's, I mean, I was out there a week later and I was driving up and down Pacific coast highway in his Porsche Boxer. And, uh, that's where he would drive or he would walk. He did a lot of walking while he talked on the phone, but he loved Pacific coast highway. So I drove down south from San Francisco and stopped is when Lacey Peterson went missing. So we stopped at all the same places that her posters were kind of left. And we stopped at a McDonald's in Pacifica and left his poster. And the manager came running out and said, this guy was here this morning. He was driving a yellow Corvette. He was acting manic. He ordered three hash browns. I've lost tons of weight on Weight Watchers. So Michael and I had a lot of discussions about diet and exercise. I know hash browns at McDonald's were three points at Weight Watchers. They were his favorite. We had many discussions about it. The guy ordered three hash browns and then seemed confused that he had to pay for it. So he ran back to his car. The car didn't have any plates because the guy took that much notice of him. So I was four hours behind at that point that we think of. And the guy was pretty convinced. And I know, you know, we're out there looking for it. But because at that point, you don't know. You just don't know where he, what, what could have happened. And we talked about the bridge, of course. He lives in San Francisco. We talked about so many. It's just. I just don't see it, just knowing him. And it's not that I'm just not trying to, because it's been 19 years. But I really just feel like he was trying to find his own peace. And I think, if anything, he would have tried a monastery before before that. He started studying Buddha in the years before he went missing. So, And, and Buddha left his ascetic lifestyle at 29 as well. He has books and books about Buddhism. He was a little obsessed with The Born Identity, the movie The Born Identity, and he asked me once, what would you do if you ever called and I wasn't here? And I said, well, what do you mean, if I just disappeared? I don't think you talk about disappearing if you're going to kill yourself. It is possible, because I think he was really struggling, and when you're in that kind of desperation and despair, I've lost a child, so I know that deep despair and that fog. And he doesn't have a reason, right? So his brain keeps telling him, him to feel this way. He could most certainly have made that choice. But I'm telling you right now, I was out there a week later, and I believe I was behind him. And I believe he was still alive. Though the sighting has never officially been confirmed, Michael's family believes there's a strong possibility that it was actually him. Michael's cousin Gina explained why this sighting stuck out to her so much. We had learned that he had just been at a McDonald's. and. I know this is going to sound strange, but all through high school, our senior year anyway, we would skip school on Friday mornings and go get hash browns at McDonald's. That was like our thing. Every Friday morning, we'd get hash browns at McDonald's. We'd be late for school. Teachers would laugh at us, bring us one next time type of thing. So when she got there, they were like, he just bought like four hash browns and left. I was like, are you kidding me? Like he was trying to give us signs. He was trying to tell us things. Michael's family was realistic with us in our conversations about what may have happened to him and remains open to the possibility that he did choose to end his own life. One thing that led credence to that conclusion was what Kim found on Michael's computer, that he had searched for information about carbon monoxide poisoning. But Gary told us that there were other things on Michael's computer as well that pointed in other directions too. We got his computer a few weeks after, so it wasn't right away, and I didn't get to see it. My sister saw it first, and I saw it. I looked at it just because I had the 
the credentials for it and could look into it and see my skill set is more in that in that in that field. But I didn't see anything that was too that would give away. I mean, there's some stuff look, looking about about a homeless shelter and stuff as well. That's something I could have seen him doing is just just appearing and then going off the grid somewhere. And that's one of the places where she looked for him. I think I think if he did something, he did it right away. And the only other alternative would be that he chose to go off the grid and or he was just in a state where he just didn't function and he started to um, I don't know kind of lose his wits about him and where he was and what he was doing and he had watched The Beautiful Mind and watched uh, Born Identity and there's a couple times when he would he kind of almost fantasized about it or talked about it but. My sister would think that he did something like that. I'm not sure that that's the case, but I could see him trying to live someplace else and be away from everything. And he had traveled to Italy right before, uh, maybe the, the fall before anyways, and he had traveled to South America, Brazil. So there's a couple big trips that he took in the fall previous year. And when he traveled, you know, he took like a um, took like a pair of pants and a shirt and then rolled it up in a little bag and that's all he took. So he'd go for the whole week that way. In hindsight, Kim looks back at the months before her brother disappeared, and she can see clear warning signs that he needed help. He seemed to be a bit obsessed with things like Buddhism, and two movies that had come out the year before he disappeared, The Born Identity and Catch Me If You Can. He seemed to be fantasizing about leaving his life behind and living under a different identity. And this has always left his family with so many questions. I know Michael came home the fall before several times, I think, because he was struggling and we knew he was struggling. He came home, Gary got remarried and he gave a speech at Gary's wedding. And I remember thinking, yeah, he needs us like he should be home. And we started talking about that. Then he flew home to take a family photo so that we could surprise my mother at Christmas. That's the one with the orange shirt. And he was just so adamant about wearing orange. We didn't associate it until later with the foreign identity, but. That was just so, it stood out so much to us in conversation that, you know, in hindsight, and I know you look for things. I think Michael left little, you know, tchotchkes all over the place for us. I like obsessed about it because it's my brother, right? And if he's out there suffering, that's all I kept thinking was he's out there suffering. We had to find him and I'm the person, I'm the person to do that. And I knew that. Gary mentioned the trip that Michael had taken to Europe five months before he disappeared. He had gone on that trip with a friend named Alicia. Kim corresponded with Alicia after Michael disappeared. And this is some of what Alicia had to say. I think that disappearing would have been as appealing to him even more so than suicide, and would have also relieved the pressure he was feeling, because it is kind of like suicide, completely changing your identity. You're just not dead, but the identity is. And he was so into Born Identity. Did I tell you that he played out parts of that movie while we were in Europe? Only I didn't know, because I hadn't seen it yet. We were walking around Paris, and I thought we were just walking. But then I figured out his goal was to reach the bridge in the movie. Anyway, we walked all the way to this bridge. And then he wanted to stand out in the middle of it for a while. It was the bridge where Jason Bourne tells the guy to meet him. Then he watches from the top of a building. Mike wanted to stand there long enough to smoke exactly one cigarette, and he wanted to try to go up to the top of that building, but it was closed. Then there were other things, like he would want me to count my steps from one place to another, and then tell him how many steps, like Jason Bourne does in the bank. And I didn't think anything of it, until I saw the movie and I understood more stuff. So maybe he's in the Greek Isles, because that's where Jason Bourne ends up. 
You know that he came to Italy with only the clothes on his back, right? I'm positive it was a test to see if he could live with nothing. Alicia, who he traveled with, they only met a few months before they traveled. So the Michael that she really knew is this, you know, eccentric Michael traveling to Italy with, he didn't travel with any bags. He, he had to repeat things from the Born Identity. I've tried watching it so many times just to see if there's something else or if, I, you know, and then you watch Catch Me If You Can because he's also, he's also referred to that. And I think that's why he's missing or gone. But I think that's why he could be alive, too, because I think if you surrender yourself to a monastery, if you surrender yourself to a different existence, even if it means surrendering everything that you do love, if you surrender yourself to that, then you pour your energy into something that maybe can keep you going. And that's why it's so plausible. And I think if he's missing on purpose, he thinks that it's because the rest of us are okay enough to be able to handle it, and he is not. Michael's cousin Gina also remembered a conversation that she and her husband had with Michael about the born identity. Months before he went missing, he came to my husband and I, and he's like, can I just hang out with you guys? They're like, yeah, sure. We're not that fun. I mean, we're a married couple that doesn't go out anymore, but sure, hang out. So he came home from California. He was sitting with us. And all of a sudden, he's like, you've seen that movie, Born Identity? You know how to make passports? And it was an hour and a half long conversation. And you don't think of anything about it, right? You just think that's Michael until you think about it. And then you think, God, he could have made them. But that's Michael. He gets fixated on something. Like he, he was questioning Buddhism. So he became, he just engrossed in it. And we come from a very loving, caring, open family. So nobody questions it. Everybody's just like, okay, he likes Buddhism now. All right. He thought people were after him, which maybe they were because of his troubles at work. I don't know. When you love someone, you protect them in the best ways you can. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. It's an advanced system that protects every inch of your home and backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for fast emergency response for less than a dollar a day. I found their products so easy to install, and their app gives me peace of mind that I can see what's going on at my home wherever I'm at. Simply Safe is trusted by the experts. It was named Best Home Security Systems of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. Simply Safe offers everything you need for whole home protection. HD cameras for indoors and outdoors, advanced motion sensors and entry sensors to protect doors, windows, and rooms, and a collection of hazard sensors to detect fire, flooding, and more. Plus, with a 60-day risk-free trial, if you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. Simply Safe even covers return shipping. Order now to get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring. Don't wait. Visit simplysafe.com/mia. That's simplysafe.com slash MIA. There's no safe like Simply Safe. In 2015, Michael's case made the news again when a homeless man was spotted who looked a lot like Michael. And even facial recognition software determined that there was a high probability that this man was Michael Wallace. A homeless man in California, somebody thought they found Michael and this guy had had a conversation with this woman and said how close he was to his sister and his family was just wonderful and his mother and he was brilliant. His name was Michael and 
you know, when I saw the picture of the guy, I thought no at first, but I always keep it up on one of my screens on my computer just so I can not talk myself out of it. You know, the guy had a scar in the same place Michael had a scar in. I have a girlfriend that works in um, law enforcement. They did a facial recognition. He was 86.2% that it was Michael or 86.7 or something like that. So we had 2020 here. We had 2020 out there. We had all the law enforcement people. I called everybody that I knew just so I could make sure they held him for 36 hours. My mother and I to fly out there. Turns out it wasn't him. And I really didn't think it was him. But in our heads, you know, we're thinking, well, if he was on the street, because I could see him living homeless because I can see him resonating with let's just live life. Let's just be happy. Let's not worry about people and bills and responsibility and all these things. So it's totally believable if you knew him. More recently, the family's gotten a tip about a different person who looked like Michael. And this person was spotted not far from where Michael had vacationed in the months before he disappeared. There's a guy that took a picture with Harrison Ford in Sicily. And Michael's friends from high school called me. And this guy, he's got a mask on, but he looks, I haven't posted about it yet because I don't want to blow up this guy's life like we did the homeless guy in California. But this guy looks exactly like my brother. And he's in a village in Sicily in a beach community that Michael visited five months before he went missing. And he's a cop in Sicily. This guy helped find Harrison Ford's credit card or something. And he's in the picture with Harrison Ford. Now, it's probably not my brother. And I've kind of resolved myself to the fact that it's probably not him. But this is what we this is what we deal with. I think for me, it helps me to remember that people are still looking for him. When we first saw the guy in Sicily, like, this guy looks so much like Mikey. I was pissed. I was so, I was just mad because I thought if he has literally been well enough to make himself Policia in Sicily and then gets his picture taken with Harrison Ford, but he's not calling my mother, I'm going to kill him. Like, I was so mad because I thought for sure this guy looks so much like Mikey. Michael's cousin Carrie believes there are so many possible outcomes for what happened to him but doesn't understand why Michael would leave his widowed mother behind without knowing what happened to her son. The unanswered question is the hardest part, you know, the just not knowing. I think there used to be a lot of hope that that he is out there and that, you know, there was this hope that he'd be found and brought home and be able to get help. And I think now the hope is just some closure or resolution. I think everyone that knows Michael has kind of run through every possible scenario already in their head. And the idea that just wanting to know now, just some kind of an answer as to what could have happened so that the family can either find him and bring him home if he's still alive, or at least be able to bring him home and have closure if he's not. And not knowing is the worst part of it all. You may forget, and then something comes up, some story, some, it's right back there all over again. It's just the not knowing is, and I I know what it's like for me. I can't imagine what it's like for his brother and sister and his mom. I, I can't imagine what that would be like if my sister were gone. And Mike and I were really close growing up. And, you know, I think the most about Annie Ange, obviously. You know, she lost Uncle Ralph and then she lost Michael. And at least Uncle Ralph, she could mourn and have closure. And losing Michael, there's just so many questions. 
Did he join the French Foreign Legion and literally create a whole new identity for himself? I mean, he was so smart, so well-educated, so charismatic. It is possible that he reinvented himself in some way. I just, until I hear differently, I have to be open to every and all possibility. Michael's cousin Gina told us that she spent the last 19 years preparing herself for the answers that hopefully will come someday soon. We've been prepared for a couple things. We've been prepared to know that he's been living on the streets, which I can't imagine with him unless something medically or hallucinating wise like happened to him. And the other thing I'm prepared for is to to hear that he succeeded with committing suicide because it's not like he hadn't tried before. He must have really felt internal struggle. And it makes me feel sad that he couldn't or didn't feel like he could come and get the support that I would have loved to have given him. But over time, I mean, it's been quite a while. It's been, we've had a long journey of this, 20 years. And so over time, I realized that it's not him not wanting the support from me. It's him not wanting support from anyone and just being tired. We reached out to the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office to request an interview and records. Unfortunately, our requests were denied. Kim told us that law enforcement hasn't done much with Michael's case over the years, which has left her feeling like it's her job to chase down any leads about her brother. They email me every, I don't know, how many years and say, this is the new person, this is the new, but they never really do anything. I get it. I don't know, you know, there's not much that they can do, but I know that we used to have to have people that we knew trace his social security number and trace things like that to, just to see if he popped up somewhere. They don't do anything. The only reason he was on the news and in the paper is because I was a pain in the ass. I've sent his dental records, I don't know how many times, a hundred times. Namaston wasn't around when Michael went missing, so... At the beginning, I had a folder, I still have it, that has all his dental records. You know, my mother and I put together just this folder of everything. So when a body was found, we would send it over. I used to belong to groups. They would try to match cadavers, bodies that were reconstructed scientifically with people that were missing. Gary also noted that Michael has some distinguishing features that would make it difficult to believe he's gone unidentified all of these years. From a forensics perspective, if he did something to himself, he had some he had some signature things. He had a his metal in his ankle, in his left ankle. He had a couple of tattoos. So if he had skin, obviously the tattoos would be very obvious. But if he, you know, someone found him, then they would find, the, especially the ankle, it would be a very obvious uh, sign. He broke his ankle playing football his junior year in college. He had to get it repaired with metal plates, metal rod. But yeah, those types of things would identify him if they if someone had found him and something had happened to him. He had a tattoo um, on his inner right thigh, I think it was. It was a uh, Tasmanian devil. It's been nearly two decades since Michael disappeared. And Michael's family has decided to do more than just look for him. They've dedicated enormous resources toward focusing on destigmatizing mental health, talking more openly about the feelings people who self-harm experience, and creating a supportive community in Michael's honor. Angela told us how this helps her feel like she's doing more than just wondering what happened to her son. The emotions of everything, of where he is and what he's doing, I just don't know. And it depends on the day what I think. Some days I can feel like he's on a Greek aisle with a rich widow. 
<laughs> Other days, he might have jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and never been found. Well, one of the guys that he wrote a book, he jumped off and a seal or, or sea lion held him up above the water until he was rescued. Broke a lot of bones. Kevin Hines wrote a book and explained the entire thing about jumping. This was a while ago. He's recovered and we listened to, he spoke at one of the functions we went to in Worcester. And he was amazing to listen to. And it sounded just like listening to Michael's head for a while. But who knows? That's why we do what we do. We can help some of the, some of the other people. And that's one of the best things about this is when we went and talked to the schools. And after we're done talking, telling Michael's story, kids come up to us and say, well, I know I suffer, or my sister, or my mother, or somebody suffers. I didn't think I could talk to anybody, but now I feel like I can. That's all you want to know is you helped one person. We do a party with a purpose. It'll be in May. And all the money we raise comes back to our town or our hospitals or schools. And we have a run in October because my husband was a really avid runner. And my daughter said, well, after the run, we're going to have to have a party for my mother. <laughs> she thinks I'm the party person. Alongside Angela, Kim runs a nonprofit organization to provide resources and assistance to people who struggle in silence. We run a mental health foundation now, and we run a, a program called Healthier Minds. You know, and I've lost a child, so I've absolutely been depressed, and I know what that fog and despair feel like, but I don't suffer from it on a regular basis. Normally, I just kick its ass back, and so I help other moms, and I've done that for 27 years because that's who helped me. It's kind of the same reason we do Michael's Run, because if someone had come along when I lost my friends in the 80s and talked about suicide and talked about depression and not just put a label on it and slap a drug to it, but really talk about it and get to the depth of each person, then maybe Michael would have come along and said, hey, OK, well, here I am and I have this and let's let's see what we can do with it instead of, you know, you turn that energy into something. And that's what we do now. I go to talk to the kids because that really fills me up a lot. But, and my mother it makes her feel like, you know, we're doing something positive. But I find that helping other people with what I've learned or helping other people through Michael's journey. When you live with it or love somebody with it and they teach you, like Michael taught us very well, this is what it means and this is what it is. That's why we do the work we do now because of him, because there's, there's other people out there, including my son, including, you know, a lot of people, everybody, everybody has something or everybody's going to grieve. Everybody's going to need support. And we're just used to having it. And he went out into a world where he just didn't feel it. So what happened to Michael Wallace on February 4th, 2003? He had plans to go to the DMV to get identification so that he could fly home to see his family. If Michael was considering ending his own life, why was he making these other plans? It's believed that Michael walked out of his home that day, taking just his phone and medications with him. It's also believed that he had his grandfather's dog tags with him as well. None of those items have ever been found. And what about Michael's preoccupation with the ability to go underground or off the grid? He seemed particularly fixated on two films that had come out in 2002, The Born Identity and Catch Me If You Can. Is it possible that he really did disappear of his own volition and perhaps went to a monastery as his sister has considered? Or did something else happen and Michael chose to end his life? We know that he was making plans, but it was clear to those around him that he was struggling. 
and perhaps it was a sudden decision. Did the challenges he faced for so much of his life take over when his marriage dissolved and his job was becoming unbearable? If Michael did choose to end his own life, why has he not been found in almost 20 years? At the time of his disappearance, Michael was 29 years old. He was approximately six feet tall and weighed around 190 pounds. He had brown hair and brown eyes. If you have any information about the disappearance of Michael J. Amico Wallace, you're urged to call the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office at 650-363-4050. If you or a loved one are experiencing thoughts of self-harm, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or visit nationalsuicidelifeline.org. Our goal is to preserve the integrity of every life and honor the lives of the missing without causing trauma to those who may be struggling. You can continue to follow Michael's story and any updates on his family's website, michaelsrun.org. Don't give up. Somebody will listen. It may not be a family member. It may not be someone you know, but there is someone out there that will listen. So find that person and choose a different path. You can. We all have a choice. We all have a choice in the morning to wake up and put our pants on one leg at a time. And you can choose to put the pants you have on right now, or you can choose tomorrow to wear a different size pants if you'd like. But we all have a choice. So choose a different path and find someone to talk to. I feel like this is said so many times, you're not alone, but what does it mean not to be alone, right? And so the journey that someone may feel like they are alone, there needs to be a connection for them, right? A a way of saying, this is is where you can go if you don't wanna feel alone. And so hopefully Michael's Run has offered that to people because we've, we've heard from several people, I've never told this to anyone, or I didn't know this was out there, or in that realm, right? I think it's hard to find the support sometimes because you don't know where to look. When you're Googling things, it doesn't always come up clear. And part of my job is to create activities where our community learns about mental health and physical and mental disabilities. So I think through that, I've learned that education and I've heard many sad stories of people whom I didn't think would commit suicide did. So in my brain, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, if it was Michael. Not that I want that to be the case. I really, in my gut, feel like he's somewhere, but my brain has to tell me that to prepare for it. That brings us to the end of episode 341. I'd like to thank everyone who spoke with us for this story. If you have a missing loved one that you'd like to have featured on the show, 
there's a case submission form at thevanishedpodcast.com. If you'd like to join in on the discussion, there's a page and discussion group on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at The Vanished Pod and also on Instagram. If you enjoy this show, subscribe now and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Do you want to help support the show? There are a couple things that you can do. One way to help The Vanished is by supporting our sponsors. You can find links and promo codes in the episode notes. Another way to support the show is by contributing on Patreon, where you can get early and ad-free episodes. Be sure to tune in next week. We'll be sharing a story from New York. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.